0: God is the one who invented sex. I don't know if you've ever thought about that but Adam and Eve after all in the garden were without clothing and God was the one who commanded them in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 28 it says that God blessed them and said to them be fruitful And multiply. And you don't have to be a biological genius to know what needed to take place in order for them to be fruitful and multiply. Not only that, when God, on that day six, when God had created Eve out of Adam's side, and and he utters that poem, which may have been the first poem a man ever wrote towards his wife, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I shall call her woman, for she was taken out of man. God then says in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh, that phrase, certainly means more than the sexual union, but it means at least that. And so God is the one who has given the gift of sex, dare I say, a wedding gift, to be opened on your wedding day, to be enjoyed between husband and wife. It is a gift that has been kicked around like a football. It is a gift that has been perverted and twisted. And by the way, as we're going to see this morning, that is not merely a contemporary problem. It is an ancient problem. An ancient problem that pervaded the ancient world really is a problem all the way from Genesis 3 to the year 2022. Because man is always taking the good gifts that God gives and defying the God who has given the parameters for those gifts and even, dare I say, making idols out of the gifts that he gives to our own misery and destruction. Well, we find ourselves in Leviticus 18, but as you know, the Bible is written with different books, sections of Scripture. In Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is smack dab in the middle ...of a five-volume book that is sometimes called Torah, or we typically call it the Pentateuch. It's Moses's, uh, what, what God inspired Moses to write, and it's right in the middle of those first five books. It's really the heart of Torah. And in Leviticus, it's just on the heels of God having delivered the Israelites out of Egypt... And he's going to bring them into the land that he promised them. And all this is fulfillments of promises that he had made to Abraham many years prior. And he's going to bring them into the land. And and he's given them instructions on the building of the tabernacle. And how they are to approach the Holy God. And really the first 16 chapters, the first 7 chapters of Leviticus. Outlines the different sacrifices they are to bring before God. In order to be accepted before God. And so we, we outlined all those different five different sacrifices of those first seven chapters. And chapters 8 through 10 highlight the priesthood. That man could not merely approach God on his own terms and in his own way. He had to approach God with sacrifice and with a mediator, with a priest. Does this sound familiar to us New Testament Christians? You get to God through sacrifice and priest. Ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And then in verses 12 through 15, there's all these clean, unclean laws. Lots of, dare I say, yucky stuff about bodily fluids and blood and animals that are clean and unclean. And we saw all these things. What makes a person unclean with these different, whether it's dietary restrictions or coming in contact with blood these things were what prohibited one from entering and meeting with God in tabernacle. You had to be cleansed before you could go through. There had to be a process by which you could approach God. And all of this is highlighting that God is a holy God. Man is sinful. Man is unclean. Man must approach God through sacrifice and priesthood. And all this kind of culminates in chapter 16 on this great Yom Kippur, this great day of atonement in which there are two goats and there's the casting of the lots and one goat is sacrificed unto Yahweh. Another goat runs into the desert. And this is God's picture of atonement that is needful collectively and corporately on behalf of his people made by the priests so that they can dwell with a holy God. And then chapter 17 Uh, gives lots of explanations about blood and laws about what you were, were and weren't allowed to do with blood and the importance of bringing that sacrifice to the tabernacle. And all this was highlighting that God, the only true and living God, Yahweh God of Israel, is to be approached with blood. You must come with atonement. There must be something that takes the punishment for your sin and for your uncleanness. And then chapters 18 and following, which is where we're at this morning, it's sometimes called the the holiness code, where God outlines uh, how the Israelites are to be living their lives. Like, for instance, in the following chapter, in chapter 19, you could really find all ten commandments in chapter 19. Okay, so a lot about the morality of how you're supposed to live. And I, I think this is wonderful in the sense of, You know, sometimes uh, preachers talk about gospel grammar. You have the indicatives of the scripture and then you have the imperatives. And what is meant by that is, for instance, if you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you have all these indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ and all of his grace towards us. And then chapters 12 and following says, now do this. This is how you're supposed to live in light of this. It's the same thing in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. All the indicatives of what God has done, and then you get to 4 through 6, this is how you're supposed to live in light of this. Well, in a very real sense, we see this wonderfully in the book of Leviticus. We see God has provided a way in which sinners can come before Him, must be through blood sacrifice, must be through priesthood. That sinners can be forgiven and accepted before God and now this is how you're supposed to live. And very high on the agenda for Israel and how they were supposed to live as a set apart people had to do with the bedroom. Had to do with their sex lives. And so Again, you can see how this ancient book, it's as, as, as relevant as if the ink dried this morning. Now, to be sure, there are some things that we're going to see that are unique to uh, God's covenant with Israel as we go through these sections. But nonetheless, what is crystal clear in chapter 18 is that God was concerned that they not pervert His holy gift of sex. Now, before we even dive into this, you may be sitting here thinking, what on earth did I walk into this morning? You know, some of you, your face is already red. You're ready to plug the ears of your children. I'm going to work really hard not to be graphic. I'm going to work really hard to, to try to be as Honest and candid as the scripture is, w- w- with the prudence that the scripture itself gives, and even using euphemism and things like that uh, when it comes to uh, these things. But but le- let me give just a, a little bit of a defense for this, because you may think this odd, you may think this uncomfortable. But but again. Let me just say at the outset here, it's the next chapter in Leviticus, okay? So, you know, God sets the agenda here, okay? You know, I'm not going to skip chapters 18 through 20. Uh, It's the next chapter. But also, consider the reality, the world is not silent when it comes to sex. Whether it's through commercials... Books, magazines, music, TV, movies, social media, government schools, peers. Somebody, the world is teaching. The world is catechizing. The world is indoctrinating you. Or it's trying as hard as it can. And it's indoctrinating your children. It's indoctrinating all of us. And so the world is not silent on these things, so... I also must say the Word is not silent on this. God's Word speaks loud and clear on these issues. I mean, over and over the Scripture not only warns about the perversion of God's good gift of sex, but even highlights the beauty that is found within the marriage bed. There's even prohibitions. You look at 1 Corinthians 7, you know, uh, do not deprive one another in this area, talking to married couples. And so the scriptures are not silent on this matter. In fact, some years ago, I think I did a, I don't know, 12-part, 20-part series on the topic of sex. Highlighting the, the the various purposes God gives for this gift. Now, I don't think we're going to do twelve or twenty messages in Leviticus nineteen or eighteen and twenty, which is kind of a parallel. But nonetheless, I think it's important for us to not hurry our way through this section of Scripture. And then I would also say that not only does is the world not silent, the word speaks loud and clear, but also uh, the work of parenting. I know many of you have children, and so you will be rearing them, not in the world that you grew up in, but the world that they are growing up in. And you need to teach them, you need to equip them, you need to prepare them. And we can't be caught off guard on these things. And so, this morning we're just gonna zero in on the motivations that God gives for holy sex or sexual purity. There's three motivations we see, I think, at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. And then in the middle, in which in the middle that we'll cover next week is all the manner of prohibitions against various forms of sexual immorality and perversion. And so all this is motivations... For us not to go outside the boundaries of sex that God has given for his own people. And the first motivation he lays out is the authority of God. Notice in verses 1 through 5. And and you can see it as well at the end of the chapter. These these strong statements. It says for instance in verse 1 it says. Then Yahweh spoke. To Moses now we've mentioned this in the past in our series in Leviticus, but it's worth repeating if if you were to have kind of a you hear of red letter Bibles, you know those are those Bibles that have all the words of Jesus in red. If you had a red letter Bible of all the words that that are direct quotations of God. In, in, in the Old Testament, I would say, even in all the Bible, Leviticus would have more read than any other book of the Bible. Over and over, then God said to Moses, and then it just repeated what God said. Quotations of God. And so, this is the voice of God. This is God speaking to Moses, telling Moses what he is supposed to say to the people. And he tells them, speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I... I am Yahweh your God. Notice the repetition of this phrase I am Yahweh your God throughout this section. He repeats it again in verse 4. I am Yahweh your God. Verse 5. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments which I uh, which if a man does them he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. And then we also see it at the end of this chapter in verse 30. You are to keep my charge that you uh, do not do any of the abominable statutes which have been done before you so as not to defile yourself with them. I am Yahweh your God. You notice the repetition over and over. I am Yahweh. Now, there, there does demand some explanation. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible which chooses not to transliterate I'm sorry, chooses not to translate but to transliterate this proper name of God. Uh, Most of your English translations have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But it's the Hebrew proper name of God, Yahweh. It is God's covenant name. It is very distinctive. There's other words that we find in the Hebrew Old Testament that, that were sometimes even used of the pagan gods. For instance, Elohim Or El. It's just a general word for God. Just like our word for God in English. It's just a very general word. And you have to further define and clarify. Well what God are you talking about right? But not so with Yahweh. Yahweh was very specific. Very distinct. This was the God of Israel. This was the God who revealed himself. At the burning bush to Moses. When he says I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so this here is highlighting, God is saying as he's going to give these imperatives, this is how you're to live, this is what you should not do when it comes to sexual relationships. I am Yahweh your God. I am God. And then notice even the language that he uses to speak of these stipulations as to how he wants them to live. In verse he says you are to do my judgments and to keep my statutes to walk in them and then he says you shall keep my statutes and my judgments notice these two words here statutes and judgments statutes this is a word that was commonly used in, in Torah case laws um, in those first five books of the Bible which were based on prior prescriptive laws, which give us general principles, so so these statutes were kind of like case laws if If this happens over here, this is what you're to do. Um, and then the the word translated judgments. this word appears as decrees. Or rules of God. So so basically combining both of these terms. Statutes and judgments. It it, it encompasses really all that God requires of his people. All that God is laying out for his people. That they're responsible to do and not do. And, And so again this is highlighting that God. Is one who speaks with authority. He's God after all. That the Israelites are not to be governed by the cultural dictates around them. They are to be governed by the voice of God as he has spoken to them through the prophet Moses. And God wonderfully has providentially had Moses write it down for us so that we could have it thousands of years later. And then notice in verse 3 he says you shall not Do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived nor are you to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you you shall not walk in their statutes so it's not as if God was ignorant to the sexual ethics of the pagans that lived around the Israelites he was well aware of them and he said no 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 That is not what is to govern your life. You are not to be influenced. You are not to abide by the standards of the world around you. But you are to live a distinct life as my people. Because I am Yahweh your God. Well, and so it's no wonder that as you go through this section. I mentioned that really verses 6 all the way down to verse 23. There's going to be all these prohibitions. Prohibitions against incest. Prohibitions against homosexuality. Prohibitions against child sacrifice. Yeah, like child sacrifice on the altar, killing children. Prohibitions against bestiality. Prohibitions against adultery. And so it's no wonder that these were the practices of the Egyptians, where God brought them out of, but also the people where God was bringing them to in the promised land, the Canaanites that would surround the Israelites. And so God saying, no, 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 no. You're not to be influenced by the world around you when it comes to these matters, but you're to live distinct and different as unto me. and so when you look at history of the ancient near eastern world outside of israel through archaeological studies through literature that has been left that we can go back and see the hittites who was they were part of the people group In Canaan, before the Israelites got there, they allowed incest and bestiality in certain cases. Those from Mesopotamia believed prostitution was a valid form of employment and work. The Canaanites engaged in temple prostitution and orgies in the worship of their fertility gods. Canaan was famed for its encouragement of homosexuality and bestiality and practices condemned uh, throughout this chapter were enshrined in the fertility rites in which the temple prostitutes, both male and females, incited their deities to grant fertility to the land by performing sexual acts in their presence. The vocation of Israel, the calling of Israel was to live a different sort of life. One in which all the people were treated with respect rather than used merely as objects for sexual gratification. It's the same as well with the land that they were coming from, the Egyptians. The Egyptians basically had no standards of sexual morality. Derek Tidball, in his commentary on Leviticus, says Egypt was a pagan nation. In Moses' day, the people worshipped with some 80 different gods. Some of these were manifestations of human violence, nationalistic chauvinism, or lust for power. Other, others, again, were the... Uh, Apotheosis of a mere sexual lust. Egypt was recognized for its licentiousness. It was well known that incest was practiced by the Egyptian royal family where brothers regularly married their sisters. And so this was the world that the Hebrews, the Israelites, God's people lived in. And it's kind of ironic in our day and age when, you know, we've had sitting presidents saying, you know, I want to be on the right side of history. And you, you read this and you're thinking, wow, you're on the cutting edge of the 16th century BC. You moron? <laughs> you think these sexual perversions are something new and novel that we need to celebrate? In, in, in some of these here, maybe we haven't, you know, they haven't gotten their own letter in the alphabet yet but they're part of the plus. It's coming. You know the LGBTQ plus? You know that plus? Why not incest? Why not bestiality? I mean, once you've thrown out any transcendent authority, different strokes for different folks. And so, friends, this again this is tremendously applicable that as god's people we must live by a different standard than the world around us we do not follow what you know what the latest trends are what 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 the latest sexual ethic is but we need to be governed by the voice of god as he speaks to us in the scripture because god is god he knows what's best for humanity Man's nature has not changed over the course of thousands of years. Still the same problems. Still the same needs. And God's word speaks to us. The culture around us at this point has Very little standards when it comes to sexual ethics. In fact, as far as I can tell, the only thing that's wrong is sex without consent in the eyes of the world around us. I mean, that's a very thin thread. I've even heard of, you know, some apps on phones, uh, you know, promoted to college students on, on how to, you know, say to the other person that you actually consent. I mean, utter absurdity. So often today, it's just a matter of personal opinion. Every individual decides for him or herself what is right and what is wrong. And we're back again, you know, to millennium B.C. You remember the book of Judges? There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Similar to 2022. Where you become a law unto yourself, you decide what's right or wrong, whatever feels good for you. Or in the world around us, some might think a little bit more well, you know, it might be a little bit more tricky than that. It's it's not mere personal opinion, it's 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 what society says, right? It's what the, the culture says, and so as the culture changes, you know we shift laws to speak to those, uh, those changing moral standards. But what about cultures that even today we would consider where society was dead wrong on certain things? What about Nazi Germany? Society decided that it was proper to exterminate people with disabilities, exterminate ethnic groups. You say, well, it was right back then, but it's wrong now. Well, by what standard? You see, friends, once you abandon the God of the Bible, you really have no justification for right or wrong. You have no standard of morality once you abandon the God of Scriptures. You you can't make sense out of it. But God the Almighty has spoken. He's spoken loud and clear on these matters. And there's reasons. There's good reasons for His good laws. I mean, just just take quickly something like homosexuality. You're not going to be... Hold this in the world today, but the average lifespan of a male homosexual is approximately 25 years less than a heterosexual male. 25 years less. You're being lied to, you're being conned. There's but again, it goes back to God is a good God. He knows what's best. Or, or, or again, you know, you know, adultery is glamorized in the, in the soap operas, on TV. Is this wonderful thing we, we even relabel. It's an affair. When in reality, it decimates families. It doesn't show you a, a picture of children heartbroken after the divorce of parents trying to find their way in this world. So, my friends, we, we must subject ourselves to what God has said to us in His Word. There is a transcendent authority that goes beyond the mere opinions of man and woman in our culture. But, but is, is God the Creator who knows us? Who's created us? Who's designed us? And so many of these things, even in many ways, are inherent in being created. That even fallen human beings should know better. We'll see that in a minute. And I mean fallen human beings without a Bible in their hand. But again, so this is, this is important for us to talk about, to think about. Because I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that survey, the state of theology, that um, Lifeway and Ligonier got together and did a survey of thousands of people and, and of the demographics. They zeroed in some of those statistics on those who profess to be evangelical Christians. And when it, when it comes to, for instance, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior... In 2016, 42% agreed with the Bible's condemnation, I'm sorry, the statement was the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. That's, remember we talked about that in Sunday school this morning, how there's that division, okay, well, you know, that's what it said back then, that's just for, you know, temple cult prostitutes, and so it's not really applicable today. So in 2016, 42% of professing evangelicals agreed with that statement that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. In 2018, 44% agreed. In 2022, that's this year, 46% agreed. So you can see a, a lurching Over into the world, I mean, even 42% where it starts, like, my goodness. My goodness. And so it's important for us to think about these things, to think about what the Bible says, to even be equipped to not, again, just follow the dictates of the world. We must subject ourselves to the authority of God. And also in our own personal lives, you know, when it comes to lustful thoughts or pornography, we need to understand that when we go out of bounds with what God has designed, with what God has said, we are defying God's authority. We're saying, God, you will not rule over me when I'm looking at this over here. And there's a word for that. It's called rebellion. It's called sin. Sin. And we need to repent of it. We need to confess it to the Lord. We need a Savior because of that. But not only the authority of God should motivate us, but secondly, a little bit more softly, the grace of God should motivate us. I, I, I mention it just with as as the Legacy Standard Bible translates or transliterates it. I am Yahweh your God. Just just even that that proper name of God Yahweh is pregnant with so much meaning that he is the covenant God of Israel. He is the one who wonderfully entered into a binding agreement with his redeemed people. In fact, notice even the language here of verse 3, you shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan. Notice this phrase, where I am bringing you. Moses is reminding them Remember who I am. Remember who you are. You are my redeemed people. I mean, just ponder this for a moment. God, in the wonder of His grace, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He gave him a promise. He set His love and affection upon him. He, he, he gave him a child of promise in Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob. And then those 12 tribes of, of Israel and, and they, they wind up going into Egypt. And they're in the midst of awful circumstance in Egypt, enslaved by the Egyptians. Their, their baby boys are being tossed into the Nile River. And in the midst of their, 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 their affliction, they cry out to Yahweh God, Remember us, O God! And God answers. He hand-plucks them out of the greatest, most powerful nation on planet earth and miraculously delivers them out of Egypt. And now they're in the wilderness and he's going to plant them in a land that they did not harvest, the land that they did not plant, the land flowing with milk and honey, a kind of new Eden. And now they're kind of in process of that as they're in the wilderness. And so God Almighty has been tremendously gracious towards them, tremendously kind toward them. He's heard their cries. He has redeemed them. Not only that, as we see here in the book of Leviticus, wonder of wonders. He's given them a way in which they can meet with Him. In which they can be accepted before Him. Forgiven through blood sacrifice, through a priesthood. And then he tells them, now this is how I want you to live. Not like the pagan world around you, but I want you to live a distinct life, different than the rest of the world, because I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've delivered you. Friends, does this sound familiar? These are pictures and shadows and types that find their ultimate realities in the New Covenant. Where in the language of Titus, I think it's 2.11, where it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously in this present world. The grace of God teaches us. It's when you remind yourself, God has saved me. He's forgiven me. He's justified me. He's adopted me into His family. He's set me apart for Him. He owns me. I'm His. I want to live for Him. This is great motivation. This is great encouragement. So that's not merely a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a a view of God as a God who's this big meanie. He just doesn't want me to have fun. He doesn't want me to have fun. No, no, no. He's good. He knows a lot more than your pea brain. He knows even how body parts work and are supposed to work. He knows all the ramifications of disease, of, of physical consequences, emotional, relational consequences that come when you go outside the boundaries of his law that is holy, just, and good. And so you must believe. He is a God of grace and kindness, and let this motivate you. Again, this is, <clears throat> this is what we see. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he is rebuking the Corinthians for frequenting prostitutes, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6.15 and following, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? for he says the two shall become one flesh. Well, gee, gee whiz, he's quoting from Moses in Genesis 2.24, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 6. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Then he says, flee sexual immorality, and then I think he's quoting the Corinthians where they said every, other, every sin a man commits is outside the body. But Paul reminds them, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And then he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body you have been bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body Jesus died for you he shed his blood for you he owns you you are his slave he is your master he is a kind master now he says therefore glorify God in your body this is great motivation friends You have been redeemed, you have been justified, you have been adopted. God has set his love upon you. Why would you go and make mud pies when God has provided a feast, a gourmet feast for you? Why would you play in mud puddles? When God has something so much better for you, believe Him. He is good, He is kind. Some of you may be sitting here in the throes of immersing your minds with pornographic images, some of you may be flirting with adulterous relationships. My friend, God has something so much better for you. He speaks with authority. He says, thou shalt not. But he also speaks with kindness. Did I not lay down my life for you? Did I not purchase you with my blood? Why would you go after that? And friend, you may be sitting here and maybe you've never encountered the grace of God. Maybe you're sitting here just weighed down with the burden of your guilt before Almighty God. And you know nothing of His forgiveness. My friend, I want to tell you on the authority of God's word. All these pictures and shadows and types that Moses lays out for us through sacrifice and priesthood have been wonderfully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus who thousands of years later would come to this earth, be born of a virgin. He would live under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He would die on that Roman cross with nails driven through his wrist. And through his ankles. And he would bear in his body. The full throttle. Of the father's wrath. And damnation. in hell. So that you could be forgiven of all your sins. And he, he comes to you even this morning. With an open hand. Not with a clenched fist. But with an open hand. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon Uh, upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light go to Jesus this morning you'll find forgiveness newness of life and also those of you who have gone to Jesus keep going to him keep drinking from the fountain of his grace don't harden your heart don't stiffen your neck turn back to him He loves to take prodigals back. He's waiting for you. You don't have to get up out of your seat. There's no tissue boxes up here. You can go to him right where you're at and get honest with him. First motivation towards holy sex is the authority of God. Second motivation, the grace of God. Third motivation, the judgment of God. If you will not be motivated by His sweetness, He will motivate you with His stick. Verse 24 and following. In fact, we could, well, let me start in verse 24. He says, For so do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled defiled. This is the idea of being made unclean. Now now we have a word in English, an adjective that that is close to this. When you speak of somebody who has uh, dirty jokes, that's what we mean. We mean sexually immoral jokes or a dirty magazine. That's the same idea. Or dirty thoughts. To to be defiled. And, And here, notice he's saying that that. The nations who were before them, the Canaanites, had defiled themselves by these things. And I cast them out because of these things, which which, by the way, should inform, inform your thinking when you're reading the book of Joshua. This, this is often something that comes up when you're thinking, whoa, you know, I mean that sounds very, you know, colonialistic, very imperial, right? You know, Joshua going in, them just destroying everybody and saying, get out of here. But you need to understand, this was God's hammer of judgment upon the Canaanites because of all their perversions. This was why he was in the language, uh, you know, uh, in the language that we find here, the land was vomiting them out. You know, you think purging, vomiting, you're, you're, you're getting impurities out of you, you're, you're, you're vomiting out, you know, maybe nasty food, food poisoning, you're getting it out of your system. The land was vomiting them out because of their wickedness. That's what you need to understand. Their child sacrifice, their homosexuality, their bestiality, their adulteries, their incestuous relationships. They were going to be vomited out because God was through with them. Verse 25, So the land has become defiled. The dirt is dirty. Not because it's dirt, but because of their disgusting sin. The land has become defiled. I have brought its punishment upon it. And the land has vomited out its inhabitants. But as for you, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the sojourner who sojourns among you. Verse 27, for the men of the land who have been before you, have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not vomit you out should you defile it as it has vomited out the nation which has been before you. So here there is a kind of personification of the land vomiting the Canaanites out of it because of their sexual perversions, because of their child sacrifice. Now what is fascinating at this point, so, so that was a judgment. That was a judgment upon the peoples who preceded the Israelites. And God's saying, yeah, you don't get cocky. Because this is the very reason why I vomited them out of the land. I will vomit you out of the land. I will bring my stick of judgment upon you. Now, now, what's fascinating here is the Canaanites we're not a covenant people. There's no record of prophets going to the Canaanites, warning them about all of these sexual immoralities and perversions. So what this must teach us is basically what Romans 1 teaches us, what the Apostle Paul did. That there is a revelation from God in creation That makes all accountable. In fact, listen to um, Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. It says, in, in Romans 1, he's talking about pagan peoples who didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the word of God. But they had this knowledge of God. They had this knowledge of God in creation. And they had this knowledge of God in conscience. Even if they never sat in Sunday school, even if they never heard the the word of God spoken by a prophet of God, even if they never scrolled any of the books that Moses had written, they knew. They knew this was wrong. They knew this was perverse. And they would have punishment to pay for it. Romans 1.32 says, Although they knew the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval of those who practice them. What God is saying here through the Apostle Paul, and I think through this passage, is that there is an innate conscience that humanity has Whether he has the special revelation of God in Scripture or not, whether they have a prophet or not, that they know this ain't right. This is twisted. This is perverse. This is wicked. Again, you could, how about Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, Scripture hadn't even been written that God wiped it off the face of the earth. There is an innate understanding because we are creatures made in the image of God when it comes to these sexual boundaries that the human conscience rails against it. Rails against it. and says this ain't right. By the way, that is exactly what's going on in the culture around us. You think it's about rights? You're deluded. This is a summoning Of a silencing of the conscience. I will not have anybody to tell me that this is wrong. You will not tell me. God will not tell me. Nobody will tell me this is wrong. This is my right to sleep with who I want, when I want, how I want. And it's an attempt to silence the voice of God and conscience. That's what's going on around us. That's why, even though we have, you know, cemented in the Constitution religious rights, well, we'll just throw that out for sexual rights. And also, this is very sobering. Because sometimes, you know, when you start thinking about the reality of God judging this great nation, well, we're not Israel, we're not a covenant nation. Do you think the Hittites were? Do you think those cities on this plain of Sodom and Gomorrah were? Do you think the Moabites and the Amorites and the Canaanites? No, no, no. None of them were. But they were image bearers who knew better. And God had no problem wiping them off the map. When's the last time you met a Hittite? They are no more. And God would be perfectly just to wipe this great nation right off the map. This reality is innate in each of us. Yeah. Albert Moeller tells a story of he was um, meeting with a, a seminary wives group at Southern Seminary and you know the ladies would sometimes bring questions and he would do a Q&A with the ladies and And there was one woman who shared the story uh, wanting to know, have some counsel as as to how to respond. When she was in the park just that day with her five-year-old. They were in the park and there was two men who were kissing. And her five-year-old said, yuck! And, you know... It's difficult because obviously as a parent you want to, you know, teach your child a little bit of tactfulness, a little bit of couthfulness, you know, if couthfulness is a word. But, but the impulse of that child was, as an image bearer, that's yuck. That's not right. We are creatures made in the image of God. And God will bring his judgment not merely for homosexuality, but incest, adulteries, child sacrifice, bestiality. It's all in here in this chapter. In fact, chapter 20 runs quite parallel to this chapter, but with one exception, it adds the penalty for all these manner of perversions. In chapter 18, it highlights being corporately vomited out of land, which, by the way, God would eventually do with, with the Israelites. Remember the book of Daniel? Remember the northern kingdom in captivity with the Assyrians? But in chapter 20, verse 9, it says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Verse 11, a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Verse 12, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. Drop your eyes down to verse 15, if there's a man who lies with an animal, put to death. We could keep going on and on. You get the point. These were capital crimes. And of course we don't live in a theocracy. We don't live in a theocracy where we can have death penalty for these things. Although there was a season in American history where there these were criminal offenses. And no doubt it was deterrent. But what we see here is God is serious in His judgment against any kind of sexual immorality. But when we get to the New Testament, does it lighten up on the punishment? No, it's even more clear. Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6... Verse 9-11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, the penalty is not physical death, it's eternal damnation. Now that... That's not to say that a person who's repenting and, and, and is repentant and is has laid hold of Christ, who's committed any of these sins is going to hell because he continues on in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That there is a God of grace and forgiveness. But if one is unrepentant with any of these Sexual immoralities, there will be eternal punishment to pay for such. And so, again, this is a motivation, right? It should put a lump in each of our throats. If I go down this path of sexual immorality, there's judgment that awaits me. And that you may be proving yourself not to be a Christian at all. But there's one verse I skipped over. I want to touch on it. In 18.5. He says, So then you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. This verse is quoted in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 verse 12 where the apostle Paul is arguing against the Judaizers. Basically saying, if you want to take the whole law... If, if you want to say you by obeying the law you get to heaven, then you need to take all the law and 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 let that sit on your shoulders. And he quotes from Galatians three twelve, where it says, Paul says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. You see what 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 Moses and I think. Paul inciting this as saying was this was the standard for the Israelites. Remember I said they were going into the promised land and this was going to be a kind of Eden 2.0. If you go back to the Garden of Eden God said to Adam and Eve you can eat from any tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it lest you eat from it and you will surely die. And, and, And you remember how that went over. Not well. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator, driven from the Garden of Eden. But now God is bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And this standard still hangs over, over their head, obey me and live. And it didn't go so well. And in that context, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 Because when, when we fast forward, when we get to Leviticus 26, it talks about the curses that would come upon Israel. And one of them, again, much like Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, Israel would be driven or vomited out of the land. That was part of the covenantal curse. But Galatians 3 doesn't end in verse 12. Because it goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Wonder of wonders, Jesus takes that punishment that we deserve because of our sin and ultimately promises an eternal Eden. Let's pray.